Live from Abu Dhabi, this is The Breakfast Show with Kate Jones on Teachers Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to a very, very special episode of Teachers Talk Radio with a focus on cognitive science and cognitive psychology. So anybody who knows me, has listened to the shows, read my books, you know I am a very big fan of cognitive science. So today I have the perfect guests joining me, Daniel Willingham and John Dunlosky. Live from Abu Dhabi, this is The Breakfast Show with Kate Jones on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live on the Podbean app or desktop player. Just head over to www.podbean.com slash lsw slash TT Radio or search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Well, good morning, and I'm going to have to try and contain my excitement, although I doubt I will be able to. So if you're listening live, please do tell me where in the world you are listening from. Naya, uh, sorry, Neil has written, no, not sunny Wales. Not Wales for me, but Neil, you're in Wales. Where in Wales are you listening from? I am moving back to the UK in a few months, but I have the rest of this term in Abu Dhabi. So I hope you're all very well. I'm sure you're probably like me, teacher tired, but half term is not too far away. Now, Teacher Talk Radio, we love to have our guests live. Most of our shows are live, but the guests today, we're very international. We were all on different time zones, but I was very grateful for them to give up their time for a pre-recorded interview. So whether you're a novice, quite new when it comes to cognitive science and psychology, that's absolutely fine. Or whether you're like me and you're big fans of the work of Dunlosky and Willingham, then I think you will love this show. And we have Dorian listening in from Doha, Qatar. And Dorian is one of our hosts and he's very kindly pushed his radio show back slightly today at 9.30 so I can have an extra extended bumper cog size special with two guests. So as we are here in the interviews, I'd love to... Oh, we've got someone saying, Chris, that he's from planet Earth. Well, thank you, Chris. That's always good to know. Um, (laughs) I would like you to send your feedback, your comments. And if you do have any questions, write them in. Either I might be able to answer them or I can pass them on to Daniel Willingham and Professor John Dunlosky because they are very kind with their time and they're very keen to work with teachers, support teachers. And I think it's a really exciting time in education right now in terms of what we're learning about this research and evidence-informed movement. So I will go straight to the adverts and then we will listen to Daniel Willingham. But as you're joining, please just keep the comments coming in. Um, Or if you're listening later, because all of our shows are available as a podcast. Um, I'm currently live here in Abu Dhabi in my apartment, but you may be listening back to this then you can get in touch with me. Teachers Talk Radio are all over social media. They have a fantastic Instagram page. They're on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. And if you want to contact me directly, my social media handle is at Kate Jones underscore teach. Need support with your phonics teaching? Did you know Oxford University Press now has three DFE validated programs to help you? Read Write Ink Phonics, Floppies Phonics, and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. 
Essential letters and sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, visit oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. Hello everyone and welcome to the History Hotline, the hottest line for all things black history and beyond. I'm your host, Diana Lynn Cook, making space for honest conversations about black British, Caribbean and African history. Here to teach you all the things left out of your school books. Make sure you subscribe to the History Hotline on all good podcast platforms. Follow us on social media at the History Hotline on Instagram and at the History HL on Twitter to find out about new upcoming episodes. Do you struggle with people pleasing? Is it a constant battle managing different and difficult personalities? Why not inspire, challenge and empower your team through the Mal CPD Essential Coaching Skills for School Leaders course or gain practical skills to become a strong and compassionate leader through the assertive leadership and the emotionally intelligent leader courses. All Mal CPD courses are accredited by the Institute of Leadership and Management. Find out more at www.malcpd.com. Hi, Daniel, and welcome to Teachers Talk Radio. Thank you so much. Where in the world actually are you? Because I'm in Abu Dhabi and we're on different time zones. I'm in uh, central Virginia on the east coast of the US. Ah, okay, brilliant. Well, before we start the interview, I always have some fun facts about my guests from my research. Hopefully it's not fake news. Um, but I found two fun facts about you. I couldn't whittle it down to one. So here's my first one. In 2017, you were appointed by President Barack Obama to serve as a member on the National Board for Education Sciences. Is that correct? This is true. That's incredible. What, did you get a letter? Barack Obama selected you. That's amazing. How does that... You know, I don't remember whether I got a letter or not. I don't think I did because I think I would have saved it if I had, if I had gotten one. Yeah. A lot of people asked if I uh, got to meet Barack Obama and the answer is decidedly not. I doubt he was even, well, he probably had some awareness that this happened. No, I think that's a, a wonderful thing. I bet he was yeah. very aware. So that's incredible. But my other fun fact about you, because obviously I'm a huge fan of your books. Teachers just love your books in America, in the UK, but all around the world. And your books have been translated into 17 languages. Is that correct? This is true. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. <laughs> and, and one of them is Arabic. So the, yeah. that'd be very good for our listeners in the Middle Eastern region. Oh, so that's, that's right. amazing. So I feel very lucky that I get to ask the cognitive scientist myself today um, because I'm a big fan of your work and it's helped me massively as a classroom teacher. So I feel like you don't really need an introduction because you are really well known for your books and your work with cognitive science but very briefly could you just give us a little bit of a background about uh, your background with cognitive science and education? Um, sure very briefly I was uh cognitive psychologist and neuroscientist who really was not interested in education at all 
for, I, you know, I went to graduate school um, and was interested in memory and was a, a sort of middle of the road memory researcher working on pretty technical aspects of the brain basis of memory uh, for about the first 10 years after I got my PhD uh, and got interested in education very much by accident. So E.D. Hirsch of core knowledge uh, fame uh, is also affiliated with the University of Virginia. And so when he was working on a book, he um, asked to see me. This is like 1996 or something like that. I had uh, been at UVA for four years at that point. Um, so he came and, you know, not knowing anything about um, education at all. I was happy to talk with him about memory. And he was very interested because he, he was a big fan of cognitive psychology, thought it had um, a lot of useful insights for teachers. Anyway, so uh, this was in preparation for a book he was writing at the time. I chatted with him. I forgot, had a couple of pleasant conversations with him, forgot about it. And then in 2001, he asked me to, so this is five years later, he asked me to um, speak at the national conference of the Core Knowledge Foundation. And there would be about 500 teachers there. And I said, um, well, I don't, you know, I don't know anything about classrooms. And he said, no, we, you know, we get that. Um, but I just think teachers would find it interesting to hear something about cognitive psychology. So I rashly agreed and then Six months later, it was time for me to go give the talk, I realized, and I panicked. And because I thought, what in the world am I going to talk about in terms of memory and how children learn that teachers don't already know? So I, um, but I also knew it was too late for me to back out. They wouldn't be able to find a replacement for me. So I went to Nashville um, and my wife came with me and we had just gotten together. And so my wife's a teacher. And so she, um, I, I, you know, I had said like, come to Nashville and give me this talk to teachers. Won't that be fun? Um, and half an hour before the talk, I wouldn't let her come. I said, please don't. <laughs> this is just going to be a disaster. Because basically I had gone through a bunch of my you know, slides, I'd been teaching Introduction to Cognitive Psychology already by, for years already by that point. And so I just picked out some stuff I thought seemed kind of relevant uh, and put together a 50-minute talk, but I, I had absolutely no confidence that this was going to be interesting at all. Um, so anyway, I gave the talk and uh, teachers actually found it interesting and they didn't know all of this stuff. Um, and the editor of American Educator was in the audience. Uh, and for those in your audience who may not be familiar with it, that's um, it's the magazine of one of the two main teachers unions in the US. And so she said, maybe you should do some writing for us. And I said, okay, maybe I should. And that was how I got interested in education. And it was uh, the fact that so many teachers in the audience were not familiar with principles um, of learning that were really, you know, the kinds of stuff that if you, the very first course you would take in psychology of learning uh, was what I was talking about. And a lot of teachers were not aware of it. And that seemed crazy to me. And it told me that 
um, my gang, the researchers, were not doing a very good job of getting information from our field to teachers. And so I thought that would be something I could try to do. So that was, that was, a, you said briefly, sorry, and that was you not know, that It's fascinating. So that's the, that's the back, that's the backstory on how I got into this field. Well, I love that backstory because I trained to be a teacher in 2010 and that wasn't discussed at all. Any of the psychology principles that you mentioned. And then I remember a few years into my teaching career, discovering your video about learning styles don't exist on YouTube. And that was actually posted on YouTube before I started teaching. But I was just thinking, what is going on? And as you've said, there was this disconnect that is now, well, do you feel now this, this gap is closing? I, I certainly feel this way. We've got a teacher now talking to the cognitive scientist and it's really exciting, but in a way, me and other teachers feel like, oh, this is really sad. I wish I'd have known this sooner. It seems so obvious and so important. But at least we're, we're talking about it now. That's the main thing. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So your book, as I've said, teachers absolutely love it, considering you felt like, oh, <laughs> I don't know if I can talk to teachers. Well, now your book is one of the most popular books with teachers. Why don't students like school? Obviously, you've authored lots of books, but that's the specific book. And there's just been a second edition. I actually have got it on audio as well. So I like to listen to it as well as read it. Um, why did you feel like why perhaps now was the time to do a second edition? Yeah, that's a great question, because I said in the first edition very explicitly that my hope and expectation was that um, the, so the, the book is, for those who haven't read the book, the book is centered around nine principles of how the mind works. And the premise is that you really, um, the, there's a big, uh, there can be a really big gap between basic science, which is what I do, sort of what scientists do, just try and describe the world as it is, and applied science where, uh, for example, education, where you might draw on basic science, but you've got a specific goal in the mind. So basic scientists try and describe the world as it is. In applied sciences, you're trying to change the world. You're trying to make things better, right? Um, and so one of the premises of why no students like school is that you want to be very cautious in applied sciences on drawing on basic science because there, there's a big gap there. And you can't just take any findings from the laboratory and expect they're going to apply well in the classroom. The most obvious disconnect is that in when um, scientists are investigating how the mind works, they're doing it in the laboratory. They're, and in the laboratory, you simplify. Uh, if I want to study memory, for example, I don't want memory to get convoluted with motivation. That's complicating things, right? That's what you do in science. You start down in a stripped down, simple environment. So I'll do something like pay people so that everybody's motivated to try hard on the task. Well, in classrooms, of course, nothing is controlled. <laughs> There's a lot, I mean, not, not, that, not that your classroom's out of control. But you know, you don't. You're not looking just at memory. You're looking at simultaneously at motivation, and you're looking at emotion, and like there's all these things happening at the same time. So, 
in Why Don't Students Like School, the premises, the nine principles of the mind that are presented are so foundational to the way the mind works. They're so robust that they're pretty much always going to be true. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about seven-year-olds or 17-year-olds, doesn't matter what the subject matter is, they're studying, high achievers, not so high achievers, and so on. So I, that was all backstory to your question, which is why did I write a new edition? In the first edition, I claim these principles are so foundational that I'm very, very confident they're right. So why would I need to write another edition? They're presumably still right. Um, part of the reason was just that, that, and actually my publisher said this, this, my publisher said, look, this book came out in 2009, it's now 2020, and a lot of people are going to think like, well, the book's out of date, like, how do I know this is, this information is still right? Uh, so that was one reason. The second reason was that there had been some important new research, I mean, everything's updated, but the really substantial changes um, were to the intelligence chapter. And because there's, uh, especially the section on the role of genetics, uh, the contributions of genes versus the environment. Uh, and there, I think it was uh, definitely not necessary for me to reverse what I had said in the first edition, but actually there was new evidence that provided further support for the position I had taken in the 2009 book. Uh, and then finally, I thought it would be good to add a chapter on technology because everybody was just always asking about what's, you know, how, how should we think about the mind in tech uh, with technology in classrooms. So that's why I decided to do a second edition. And also for the new generation of teachers joining, they were always recommending this book as well. But as you've said, um, it's a book that I keep returning back to. And um, in terms of engaging with research, I find that this is my experience, three things. It will either inform, tell me something that I didn't know and I learn lots. It can confirm what I'm already doing in the classroom, which is great and very reassuring, or it can actually challenge my classroom practice. And um, your book ha has done all three of those things. And actually one of the things that it challenged my practice and probably others is where you've talked about how student, uh, teachers start a lesson with attention grabbers, because we think, oh, start the lesson, get them excited, have that engaging hook. And you say, actually, no, that might not be the time where you need to have that attention. And it could be a little bit later on in the lesson, isn't it? When perhaps mind starts to wander. And, start, and it's interesting because as I was training to be a teacher, learning styles was being promoted, the attention grabber at the start of the lesson. So actually, your book has really shaped and changed the way I and many other teachers teach. Just, just misconceptions that we have, or perhaps this lack of awareness. Have you had other experiences where teachers have said this to you? I've changed my teaching practice as a result of your book. Uh, I, I certainly have, and and I think that um, the way you're describing about it, describing it is very close to the way I think about it, which is, and again, this gets back to the relationship between basic science and applied science. Like what's the role of basic scientific knowledge about how children think and learn and their emotional lives and so on. It is not to be prescriptive and say, this is the right way to teach uh, because it, it 
it literally can't do that. And again, this is the, the we could get into this more if you want to. This is the, but this is the disconnect between basic science and, and applied science. There's lots of effective ways to teach. Um, I think that what what basic scientific information can do is sometimes it can provide a different way of thinking about things and uh, offer a different perspective. So as you said, like the attention grabber, the, the thinking is like what that's going to do is it will motivate students to find an answer. So you pose this puzzle, um, grab their attention, uh, and then this um, uh, that will sort of carry, that attention will carry you through the lesson. Uh, and another way to think about it is the at the very beginning of the lesson, that's the one time, like it's pretty guaranteed everybody's listening to you at that, like no one has, attention hasn't had time to wander away yet. Um, and so if you got a really good attention grabber, maybe you want to save it for a little bit later when, you know, people are starting to get tired, you need some kind of a change of pace uh, to bring, to bring, make sure that everyone comes back to you. Yeah, well, you're always quoted, memory is the residue of thought, but there's just something that always reminds me of you. So in Abu Dhabi, if I go to the Arabic souk and I see the lamp, I think of you because I don't know if you know the connection, but you said in your book, you said, you know, if you come across a lamp and the genie asks you, what would you wish for? Oh. <laughs> right. Yeah, more work in memory capacity. Right. I'm probably the only person who looks at a lamp and thinks about working memory. Well, I'm not. I'm probably other people when they yeah. <laughs> think of you. So teachers now, generally, we've got this good understanding of the limitations of working memory and then the implications of that in the classroom. And then we know a lot more now about long-term memory, your work, the Bjorks, Pooja Agawal, retrieval practice. So... Do you now think it's important that we also share that knowledge and understanding with students, parents, family, basically the wider school community, not just teachers? Absolutely. And this is something, this is actually the subject of my next book. And the, the way I describe it is as follows. So, and, and things may be different in other education systems, but in the U.S., um, when kids start school, they are 100% not responsible for their own learning, and which seems completely appropriate to me. That you know, a four-year-old comes home from school, their parents don't say, "I'm really disappointed in your performance." You know, you're you're not really applying yourself. Your teacher says you're not really trying to learn your colors. You're on the playground and you swing, but you don't swing like you really mean it. You know, you don't you don't blame the child. It's understood that it's completely up to the teacher to create an environment where the child is is going to learn. By the time um, students finish high school, there are that's very very different situation. Uh, there's a great deal that they are expected to be able to do to manage their own learning. They're supposed to know how to pay attention, even when they don't really feel like paying attention. They're supposed to know how to plan their schedule. They're supposed to be able to know how to commit things to memory. They should know how to deal with test anxiety. All these things, take notes during a lecture, all of these things are expectations. But again, at least in the U.S., and I've be surprised if it's a whole lot different in most other systems. Uh, students never really taught this. They're not taught how to do any of these things. 
Um, and it's sort of understandable, um, by the way, the, the way we know that is just doing surveys of American college students and asking them, you know, how do you study? And then second, you know, why do you study that way? And it's usually something like 20% of them say, well, this is the way I was taught to study when I was in high school or something. Much more typically, they say, well, I just sort of figured it out on my own or I, you know, I talked to friends or something like that. And the strategies they come up with are very seldom really effective ones. Um, and it's pretty understandable why this sort of uh, self-regulation of your own learning is not explicitly taught. Um, the requirements that I refer to sort of between kindergarten and high school graduation, they increase slowly, right? They appear at different places. And so for a school to um, be mindful about teaching those strategies to students. You really have to have the entire curriculum in mind. You really need to sort of have your act together. And the other thing is it's not quite obviously anyone's job. If the student doesn't learn math, we know who to talk to uh, and we know when they were supposed to be learning math. But if a student never, you know, it's not obviously anyone's resp responsibility to teach students how to take notes. Um, so yeah, so this is a larger answer to the question you asked. You asked, should we be teaching about working memory limitations? Should we be teaching about retrieval practice? I would say yes. Um, and you know, broadly speaking, we should be teaching a lot more than that. We should be teaching note-taking. We should be teaching uh, how to deal with procrastination, how to plan your schedule and so forth. Yeah, I, that's something that I've been really passionate about. And I think we have to be careful about it because um, I was in a lesson and a student had his hand up and I came to him after listening to somebody else. I said, what would you like to say? Said, oh, I forgot. And of course, we know why. And he said, I feel really stupid. And I said, no, 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 working memory. And he panicked that he had a working memory. <laughs> <laughs> And didn't really understand but then that did lead into a nice conversation with lots of real life examples because I do think as well just day to day when you realize that your working memory isn't reliable then you can do things like I always forget where I park my car I'll go shopping and I forget so I take a photograph and it's that awareness that I have of my working memory so that's just oh, it's fascinating <laughs> today and sharing that well building on that um because you've written well obviously lots in your book and the american educator and um, so you've written about cues as a starting point for retrieving memories but poor cues will not get you access to a memory so in terms of teachers trying to design effective cues as in contrast to the to the poor should we say do you have any advice about that in terms of what the cue should we be using? It, it really depends on uh, what the content is. I mean, generally speaking, you want the to teach the content in the same way that you anticipate you're going to want the student to remember the content. That you mentioned before, memory is the residue of thought. That's basically the this that's basically that idea. Um, you want students to and typically we want students to think about meaning. And so you want to give them a task where thinking about meaning is sort of unavoidable if you complete the task. So don't just tell them, think about what this means, but if there's a particular 
you know, meaningful connection you want them to understand between two plot points uh, in a book, uh, then you've got to find some way to ensure that they're thinking about that. So that's another example from one of students like school. If you do something like give them an art project, combine an art project with um, um, uh, an analysis of the plot of a novel, then they're really kind of thinking about two things simultaneously. So if you're, uh, the, the idea of sort of doing a graphic of the uh, various elements of a novel makes a lot of sense in terms of like getting you to think about meaning. Okay, this happened and it's connected to this in the following way and then that leads to this next thing happening and so forth. But if you ask students instead to like draw pictures of those events, now they're thinking about drawing uh, instead of thinking about the plot points of the novel and how they connect. Uh, so memory can be very subtle in that way. Uh, very, it's very, very sensitive to this feature that we're talking about that you really remember what you're thinking about. Um, so if you, when, when thinking about how am I gonna ensure that the uh, cue that my students are later going to encounter is gonna be an effective one. It's really a matter of thinking about what that cue might be, but then also thinking about how that cue relates to whatever it is you want the memory to be. Yeah, it's really interesting. In a lesson, I used um, icons, pictures as, as prompts, and um, it was a wedding ring. And actually we'd been looking at Henry VIII and the break with Rome. And it was interesting because some students wrote about his desire to marry Anne Boleyn and some wrote about his divorce. And actually they were both relevant, but it was interesting. And I thought I have to be very careful here, obviously, about the, the picture or the word I select because we can't predict exactly what, what that cue will will prompt them to think about. So it, mm -hmm. it does make us think very carefully about that. And that comes back to your point about the meaningful connections and focusing on what is exactly we want our students to be able to recall. And you, you've also written about this feeling of knowing, which we all can relate to where we feel like we know it, but why can't we remember it? It's on the tip of our tongue. And my previous guests were Robert and Elizabeth Bjork. And I told Robert Bjork, you've come on my show. He's a great guest. <laughs> so there's a theme here. Um, all my guests have got uh, John Donlosky next week. So amazing. Um, and we spoke about um, storage strength and retrieval strength and the new theory. Yeah. of So I was just, that feeling of knowing, is that basically then that the retrieval strength is low, that we do know it, but that we're struggling to access it when we need it. And that, that feel that we know it, then we probably do know it, but the retrieval strength is low. It could be. And, and actually, before I get to that, I want to add one other thing to your prior question. We we're talking about cues, because I think it's a really useful, and you, you sort of prompted me to think about it when you mentioned wedding rings, as this has been something you'd sort of uh, given to your students to help them hang that memory on. That can be very effective, um, you know, giving them something that's a little bit surprising, but does have this semantic connection. Another thing that teachers can try if they don't already do it is to 
do some sort of, if it's appropriate, obviously, if you're struggling to find a way to do this, then it's probably not right. Um, but doing hand motions, especially silly hand motions can be really effective. So just recently, a, a math teacher was telling me about this, um, about how she illustrates certain types of functions when she's describing them. She's got all the, you know, she get and she gets her students to imitate that and they feel silly, right? But it becomes very memorable when you do that. And there's all kinds of others. It's, it's part of it is the the processing that comes with the silliness. Some of it is, you've maybe heard the term embodied cognition. That may be part of it also, the fact that you're using your body. Anyway, another thing for teachers to think about is the importance when you're thinking about cues, uh, sometimes a cue that seems a little out there, if it's got a meaningful connection, like the wedding ring example, like a hand motion that, that sort of imitates a, 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 a mathematical function, that can be really effective for students. So to your next, your next question, I'm sorry, were you gonna say something about that, Kate? No, no, I was just like, that's really interesting about, I've, you know, I've never thought about the, the hand gestures. And the thing that, <laughs> sorry, I'll come back to retrieval stress. Yeah. You've just prompted me to remember something <laughs> from your book about um, the, the teacher and the toga. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah, um, but how you said, because what they ended up, I dressed up as Elvis Presley, believe it or not, because we had a lesson about individuals from the 20th century. And then actually read in your book where you said, well, all they really thought about was the teacher. They probably all, all they really thought about was me as Elvis Presley. And that's, more, and that's a nice memory for them to have, but that's then taken away from the learning, isn't it? So... You gave the example, well, she could have took the outfit off and perhaps had that as the attention grabber. But And the same, there was your daughter and somebody did a, an experiment, yeah. really impressed, but she couldn't remember anything else about it. It's like those things can just dis totally distract from learning, can't they? So they can be helpful, but with caution, I imagine. And that's what I, I think. Yeah, I think they may or they may not. Right. And uh, same, I would say, with your students and Elvis. You know, it's just a matter of, as you know, the teacher being sensitive. Oh, that is a possibility. That makes sense that that could happen. But then, like, you see what happens in your class. Like, can your students get past it that that you're dressed up like Elvis and like it's funny for the five minutes that you intend, and then they get past it and they're thinking about the lesson, or do they really have trouble getting past? Right. So, yeah. again. Uh, it's not about prescription, like no one should come in costume more than three minutes, science has shown, right? It's more about, oh, like think about this as a possibility and see if that makes sense in what you're seeing in your classroom. So, so back to feeling of knowing. Um, I think the interesting, you know, the, the uh, Bjork's theory, I think, is very useful for helping us understand uh, why it is that memories can be uh, the, the technical terms are available versus accessible, but, you know, in there, but yet you can't get to it is the, uh, the experience. The other aspect of this that I think is interesting is why, what other cues might we be using when we think that we uh, know something when we actually don't know something? Because what you would expect that you do is when someone asks you, hey, do you, can you name all of the British monarchs in sequence? Like the way that you would answer that is you would look in memory 
and see whether or not it's there and see whether or not you can pull it out. And if you can, you say yes. And if you can't, you say no. But people clearly make mistakes uh, about their own memory. And students do this all the time. Students um, uh, think that they're ready for a quiz or a test. And in fact, they're not, right? So the, uh, and we know that students decide to stop studying when they think they know the content. They're not basing that judgment on how much time they've studied. They're basing it on whether they think they've studied enough. So what else are they using to make that decision? And this is a, another distinction that the Bjorks have talked about between uh, performance versus uh, actual learning. So students can, without realizing it, um, when they're self-testing, they may be getting support from the environment in some way that's leading to a feeling of good performance, uh, but they actually haven't really learned. So it's the environment that's supporting performance. So for example, the most common way this happens is through rereading. They're reading over their textbook, they're reading over their notes, and what they're feeling is like, I'm, I'm understanding everything. And so that's a performance metric. But the different, there's a big difference between understanding when you read versus being able to explain yourself. And that's what you actually need to do on the test, right? So rereading, the other, the other thing it does is it not only lets you observe yourself understanding, it also leads to a feeling of familiarity. Like, right, as you're reading, you're like, yep, yep, I've heard all this before. This all makes perfect sense to me. And so you feel that you've mastered the material. Um, but again, this is not the task that's going to confront you in the test. You're going to have to explain it without any support from the environment. Uh, and that's not the same thing. So being able to uh, know when you're ready for an exam is actually fairly straightforward. You just need to mimic as closely as you can the conditions under which the, uh, you're going to be tested. So you need to have questions put to you and see whether or not you can answer them at a moment where you don't have your uh, textbook or notes in front of you. And I would add, you haven't looked at them uh, for a little while because sometimes my students will self-test by having their textbook in front of them and you know, reading to themselves, the, the uh, Civil War uh, in the US ended in 1865. And then they look at the ceiling and they say, when did the Civil War end? 1865, okay, I know that, right? Well, it's still rattling around in working memory, right? And so you need to do this self-testing when you haven't looked at your materials for you know, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, something like that. Yeah. So you as a dad with your children, if they're rereading, will you say, right, we need to self-test, <laughs> you need to test? Oh, yeah, we've, yeah, no, they've, they've heard en endlessly all, you know, all, all of this stuff. Um, my wife too, my wife hasn't read any of my books, I don't think. And it's funny because I know, right, I told you she's a teacher. Uh, but I, and I asked her about it one time. She said, why should I read them? Like, I, I hear this all the time. I live this. I don't need to read your books. But I mean, right. unfortunately, not everyone has a parent who's a cognitive scientist. But if parents did know, then they could, they could say, well, actually, put the textbook down now. 
And why don't you quiz yourself? Because they say, oh, why isn't my child done well? I've seen them highlighting and rereading for hours. So that comes back to that, what we said before about getting that message and information. I, I think, yeah, I think it would be wonderful if parents knew more about that. I mean, I just wrote something last week about parents, I think, not appreciating how hard it is to do homework in the home environment. Parents, you know, m- most parents, their expectation is when I come home at five, you know, it's happy hour and I'm going to, you know, watch TV. And then also, you know, yeah, I've got some bits and pieces to do around the house. Um, but many parents are not used to the idea of their having to do homework. And so to them, it doesn't seem like strange to say, well, you know, you, you need to go up into your room and, you know, no screens and finish your homework and everybody else is downstairs watching television right well that's really hard and then they're surprised that their child's up there for an hour and they can't complete even a short assignment when the child knows i'm up here by myself doing this everybody else is you know watching tv and and having a good time it's a very we're talking before about self-regulation that's a very difficult self-regulation task to stay on task uh, in, in an environment like that. So, you know, what, what ought parents to do? There are lots of choices about what you could do, but I mean, at at first, the first thing to do is to recognize this is an issue. This is a thing like, you know, your expectations of your child are really high. If, if you want them to be that high, okay, I'm not going to tell you how to parent, but, uh, don't be surprised if a lot of children can't meet that expectation. And forgetting as well, um, because I've only started to see forgetting differently because we teachers, we would teach content and not revisit it and for a long time. And then students would really struggle to remember, it'd be disheartening. Yeah. And then now everything with cognitive science and the forgetting curve and your work has helped me view forgetting differently. But again, parents can panic when a child forget things, whereas actually we say, well, I think the Bjorks have said it's, forgetting is a friend of learning so again there's so much isn't there I feel like it's just getting to teachers now and it needs to so yeah we need to have a version third edition for the students fourth edition for the parents (laughs) it would be wonderful if parents knew that forgetting was a friend to learning Uh, it would also be wonderful if parents were and not all parents are but some parents are cynical about um, various aspects of school because they feel that I've forgotten everything that I knew during school. Uh, and I've written in a couple of different places about that. I mean, first of all, it's not true. And it's not true when you look individually. And it's certainly not true when you look, um, you know, in formal experiments in large groups of people. Going to school, you know, literally makes you smarter as measured by IQ tests. Uh, so, Of course, if you study something and then don't revisit it for 20 years, well, naturally, you're going to forget what you think was going to happen. Uh, But not everything that you learn in school is like that. Yeah, no, this is really interesting. Okay, then. So you've already um, sort of touched upon this because you said there's a new section in your latest book about technology. So am I right that you're basically suggesting that schools limit 
their use of technology. Uh, and I'm sort of with you if that is the case, because I worry about screen time, especially with the pandemic and the online learning. But is that the approach you've taken or what's your, what's your stance on technology? And I don't necessarily say less because to me, um, you know, tech versus no tech is sort of like traditional teaching as it's frequently called versus progressive teaching. The categories are too broad. Um, it's possible to do either one of them really well and it's possible to do either one terribly. And I think the same thing is true of technology. The thing that I've tried to uh, caution against is the idea, which I think is unsupported, that we have to have technology in schools uh, because otherwise we will in some sense be falling behind. Um, maybe this attitude is starting to calm down. I really don't know. Um, I don't have any reason to think it's calming down versus getting worse when I think about it more carefully. Uh, but I, I definitely, when I visit districts, I hear this. And like, I'll go into a district, they say, well, we're, we're going one-to-one -one with iPads. And so I'll politely ask, you know, why? What are you expecting to happen? And frequently they do not know. And the, when you press a little bit, the answer seems to be fear of falling behind, fear, some feeling that if we don't do this, we're uh, doing our children a disservice because this is the way the world is going. Um, and I don't, I just don't see very much support for that. I mean, the, the broad idea that children need to learn how to uh, uh, operate you know, tech, technological devices is of course correct, but, um, and I think that at, um, if you're worried that children are not learning that at home, then it makes sense to give them some experience. Uh, it's also the case when everyone talks about the world changing all the time, that's the kind of, that's the part of the world that's changing most rapidly is tech interfaces and how to use uh, technology. Um, the part that's not changing is vocabulary, mathematics, spelling, <laughs> history, like all the core academic subjects, they're not changing very rapidly. Uh, technology is changing really rapidly. So if you're worried about things getting out of date, teaching them technology seems like more like the kind of thing you'd worry about. In addition to which, most employers are still tolerant of the idea that as you, if you come into a job, like you may not know you know, some of the tools that we use here. And so we can send you to a class. But if you come in and say like, I, I know the tools you use, but I don't know any math, they're not gonna send you back to school to learn math, right? They're not gonna pay for that. They're, they're expecting that, you'll, that you will have already learned that. So that's, that's been my, my big um, uh, message is that the idea that the the uh, learning that can happen with technological tools is so overwhelmingly better than instruction without technological tools. Uh, you, you haven't heard, used to hear that a lot in about 2005, like all of this is absolutely essential or you know, your school's just gonna be wiped out. No one's saying that anymore and, and with good reason because people have realized it's, it's not remotely true. Yeah, we have one-to-one -one devices. So we had pre-pandemic. So actually when the pandemic came, we were actually prepared for that. And it, it was brilliant for us. But 
when students come into my class, they open their Chromebook and I tell them to close it because that I do, I'm talking and the explanation and, and yeah, I just worry about screen time, but that's something that we worry about as a school and have these wider conversations, but that's really interesting. So I'm looking forward to reading about that. So I think you've written as well about what you mentioned about this cognitive science revolution. We've spoken about how there's been this real interest in cognitive science, teachers, academics, lots of brilliant books. So it's, it's really exciting. But in terms of cognitive science, what do you think the next steps are? Do we need more research in the classroom? Do you think it's about more application? Or perhaps, like we said, spreading the message further in the community? What's next for cognitive science? I would like to see it play a larger role in teacher training. Yes. That when we look at, um, at, at least in the US, it's, it's very hard to know exactly what's happening in teacher training because the, um, the curricula vary widely, but what, what seems to be typical in most, and there are different programs, of course, for someone who's gonna be an elementary teacher versus special ed or whatever. Um, but what, what seems to be most, excuse me, most common is there's some exposure to educational psychology very, very early in the program. And then there's, uh, uh, and then there's A, no follow through. So like if you're gonna be an uh, uh, adolescent literacy instructor, when you start taking courses in adolescent literacy, the content you see there is not framed and sort of refer back to what you learned about uh, how kids think in that early course. But perhaps even worse, the, that's, that's bad enough. I mean, given what we talked about forgetting, right? I mean, the, you know, if you take one course and it's never referred to again, you're going to forget it. But in the U.S., at least, you're not going to be able to forget it completely because we know that this content is on licensing exams. But it's not just the cognitive science content that uh, which most researchers of memory would say is the most contemporary and the best um, theoretical perspective we have. You get lots of other stuff that is, would be important to learn uh, that, are, that are really of historical interest. So you'll get Piaget, you'll get Vygotsky, you'll get um, you know, uh, socio, socio uh, constructivist theories of learning, which are, are more contemporary. But when you think about Piaget and Vygotsky, I mean, they're, with all due respect, like they're, they died decades ago. And so they're very important from a historical perspective. And if you're gonna be a researcher in the field, like, yes, it's important to understand where today's ideas came from. You really don't need to understand that if you're a teacher, you really don't need to memorize that. Uh, and, but if you look at the licensing exams, that's what you find. You find Piaget, you find Vygotsky, you find a bunch of other historical figures, and you find uh, different theoretical perspectives, behaviorist perspective, uh, which there are very, very few people who are traditional behaviorists anymore. So why would you want to know that? And I think what it ends up, it ends up leaving teachers with the idea there are all these different ways of viewing learning. No one really knows which one of them is right. And so you can kind of like pick which one you want. Uh, well, some of them really are better supported than others. I mean, there's a reason that 
most American psychology, experimental psychologists were behaviorists through the late 1950s, and now almost nobody is anymore because that perspective has real limitations that were uh, problems that were solved by the perspectives that came after it. So that's what I think needs to happen, uh, ideally, would be, is that there would be uh, better, uh, more focused instruction in teacher preparation programs on contemporary learning theory that is not sort of this broad intellectual in introduction to the field, but instead is here's the best of what we know that we think is relevant for teachers. And the second thing uh, is that, that that's not only introduced in an introductory course, but carried through uh, as you move through the program. And in future courses, it's referred back to, and it helps you make sense of what you're seeing in the classroom. I said yes straight away because that's what I wished I had. I said I trained in 2010. Your book was already out then, wasn't it? <laughs> in 2000. Mm -hmm read that and been aware of it um there's currently in the uk a bit of a shake up with teacher training but i think you would like there's an early career framework the first two years of a teacher's career in england they have more support and part of the framework cognitive science is built into that uh, amongst lots of other things curriculum and assessment yeah but there is there is interest and enthusiasm i know you've been involved with research ed and they do a great job of sharing that. And it's just becoming a lot more accessible now. Even your American educator articles. So I think a teacher who perhaps is reluctant to engage with academic research, well, the American educator articles, are, they're free, they're accessible, they're, they're not pages and pages long, yeah. they're not jargon. And actually, that was one of the questions that was sent to me. It's from my deputy head teacher, the vice principal, he's a big fan. Um, and he asked, what do you think of Rosenshine's principles of instruction? Because that's another American educator article. Tom Sheridan's written a lot about it. Um, do you agree? I think, they're I think so. Honestly, I haven't read it in a long time. And so off the top of my head, I'm reluctant to, um, uh, you know, as I recall, when I read it, I was like, yeah, this all, this all makes sense to me. But but yeah, candidly, it's been a while. And so I, I'm certainly not ready to sort of give a precy of my agreements and disagreements and deep analysis. It's had like, I don't want to say a comeback, but top, the work of Tom Sherrington in the UK. So those yeah. principles now have become uh, very, very popular. And um, let's see, some other questions I had. Oh dear. <laughs> my school still promotes learning styles, although I and many other colleagues know it's been debunked. Is there anything you suggest I share or say to the senior leaders at my school to move past learning styles? It just won't go away, will it? <laughs> learning styles. They should no, it won't, it, it, it won't go away. I mean, you know, and um, I guess my first question to this teacher would be, how much time is this really taking? And to what extent do you think uh, your colleagues are taking it seriously and trying to implement it in the classroom? Because if the answer to those questions is, well, they mention it, but it's really not that big a deal, I would say ignore it. Um, because there, there can be a significant cost to you to trying to persuade people, um, uh, especially people in positions of authority in your school. Um, 
if 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 on the other hand it is really costing you um and you yeah you're spending significant amount of time or you're being evaluated based on the extent to which you're honoring uh students learning styles um yeah i mean i think then it's it's mostly going to be a question of being artful in your interpersonal encounter with uh with um, um, with your head of school or whoever is in charge there to let them know that this is not supported by research and not helpful. I mean, that the, the, other, the other possibility is that even though it's unsupported, like you're okay with some of the things they're asking you to do. Like if they, that's possible, right? It's improbable, but it's possible that they're saying like, and what, what this means is when content's really important, find multiple different ways of uh, having the kids encounter with and engage with the content. Uh, and there again, like, you know, as you can see, I'm struggling to find ways where we can decide it's fine for the teacher not to take this on. Because speaking as someone who's, you know, talked with countless people about this is very much an uphill battle. And dealing with someone who's, you know, I'm dealing with people as an outsider. They can easily not care what I think. They can walk away. When it's someone in your school who you see all the time and you feel like maybe your credibility is being threatened because they're telling you, you believe something false that is central to our discipline. It's something about how kids learn. Uh, that's an extremely awkward situation. Yeah, in my last school, I just did as you said, I ignored it. It wasn't part of my planning in my lessons. I just felt it was like lots of things with research. And then by the time it gets to schools had been misunderstood, mutated. That's also a myth. But the, the idea I think they were trying to promote was variety, which yeah. you do, which is totally different to doing X, Y, and Z for the different learners in the classroom. So right. yeah, <laughs> very good advice. And uh, my advice would be to show them your video and the things that you've written about and Paul Kirshner. But having said that, sometimes we have to pick our battles, don't we? Um, so my final question for you. So as I've said, I love your book. I've read it many, many times. Um, what books would you, or book, other than your own, because <laughs> it's so good. Would you recommend for teachers, or even if it's or or an American art educator or anything that you think, and it may not be teaching related, it could be more to do with cognitive science, but is there anything that you would recommend that teachers should read? I, I don't have a you know a go-to that I think is, you know, everybody ought to read this book. Honestly, uh I I'm a big fan of reading widely and um, exposing yourself to lots of different ideas, lots of different perspectives. Um, and you know, you you get you get a nugget here and a nugget there, and um, uh, and and it's you you sort of blend all of it into your own uh, into your own practice. Um, so yeah, I think that there you know there's so many books I've read where. It's that I guess I'm that's my recommendation because that's typically been my experience. I'll read a book and a lot of it's fine. You know, it's uh, I, I don't stop or anything, but I'm not bowled over. But then I find one or two ideas that I really get excited about in that book. Um, it makes me and to me, that's enough. I'm, I'm glad to read it. 
But I think I think the really, uh, or I'm glad to have read it. I think the really important thing to do is to just keep reading and, um, you know, sort of never never be satisfied, but also recognize, you know, I'm, I don't get super intense about this because everybody's busy, right? And so I like to find times that, um, that feel like found time for me to do audiobooks. you know, things like commuting or when I'm, you know, on the elliptical exercising or something like that. Uh, and, you know, I still will, some, sometimes I don't, I'm listening to music, whatever, but then some, you know, I, I try to make a habit of always have a book that I'm listening to um, because then it, it feels, it just becomes part of your life and woven into what you do. And so you've always got ideas kind of streaming in uh, as opposed to segregating it and saying like, oh, I heard this book's really good. Now I've got to read it in the next two weeks. And then you feel bad and like you're, you told your friend you would read it. And then every time you see them, you feel embarrassed and all that. So that's, that's the way. And again, that I, I, I make it sound like I'm giving advice. I'm really just telling you the way I do it and the way I think about it. Lynn Abu Dhabi, when I order books on Amazon, it can take a really long time. So I found audio books now, can get them instantly. Have you listened to your book on, on Audible? I, lis I listened to a bit of it. Um, I listened to a bit of Why Don't Students Like School. Uh, I kind of wish I had done the audio, honestly. But, but whoever did it has a much nicer voice than I do. But I also feel like there were moments where it was, it was like, that's not the way I would have said that. Like that it changed meaning a little bit the way that he did it. And then I did do the audiobook for When Can You Trust the Experts? And I really quite enjoyed that. Well, um, that's that's my next recommendation. <laughs> yeah. And also, um, like the American educators, superb, absolutely, you know, busy teachers can't recommend that enough. And the quality. Yeah your articles um, and the great thing about american educator is that it's free i mean i think you pay i think you have to pay ten dollars a year or something if you want the print but if you get it online it's free it's really a wonderful thing that uh, the american federation of teachers has done is to make that freely available to everyone and they're also by the way very nice about letting people reprint it for for you know nonprofits for various purposes yeah, absolutely. I've shared them widely. I've read them. I've returned to them. So, I, yeah, I would highly recommend them. And I'll share the links for all of our listeners. But thank you so much. It's been a real privilege to be able to ask the cognitive scientist. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Kate. It's a pleasure chatting with you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Need support with your phonics teaching? Did you know Oxford University Press now has three DFE-validated programmes to help you? Read Write Ink Phonics, Floppies Phonics, and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use, and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more, and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, visit oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics.
Hello everyone and welcome to the History Hotline, the hottest line for all things black history and beyond. I'm your host, Diana Lynn Cook, making space for honest conversations about black British, Caribbean and African history. Here to teach you all the things left out of your school books. Make sure you subscribe to the History Hotline on all good podcast platforms. Follow us on social media at the History Hotline on Instagram and at the History HL on Twitter to find out about new upcoming episodes. Do you struggle with people pleasing? Is it a constant battle managing different and difficult personalities? Why not inspire, challenge and empower your team through the Mal CPD Essential Coaching Skills for School Leaders course? Or gain practical skills to become a strong and compassionate leader through the assertive leadership and the emotionally intelligent leader courses? All MALCPD courses are accredited by the Institute of Leadership and Management. Find out more at www.malcpd.com. Hello, John, and welcome to Teachers Talk Radio. Uh, very international today, Abu Dhabi, um, Ohio. Is that correct? It is correct. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you. Well, I was thinking, actually, in, in music, there are these stars who are known just by one name, Madonna, Cher, Bono. I think you're like the rock star of education. I say Dunlosky. <laughs> Everyone knows who I mean. <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's very generous and way too kind, but thank you. And I'm not quite sure how to introduce you. I, mean, I know you're a professor of psychology at Kent State University, Ohio, um, but in the UK, we're given advice that a CV should be about two pages long. And I read yours, and I think it's 17. <laughs> because you've had our CVs over in the United States. I have a lot of uh, useless material in there just to make it long. No, no, the Bjorks are the same, like he, Robert Bjork had like five pages of awards, so, but you've just done so much, so <laughs> that's why your CV is very, very impressive. So you are really well known in education for your work with study strategies, teachers absolutely love your work, myself included, so I wanted to start off by asking how did you become interested in metacognition and how we learn effective study strategies? Actually, my interest and passion to explore these kinds of ideas started when I was a graduate student. Then, though, I was extremely myopic. I was just investigating one aspect of metacognition, and that was how well students could monitor their learning. And I was really interested from a theoretical perspective, um, the relationship between consciousness and ability to monitor yourself. And what initially blew me away is just how poorly students were able to monitor what they learned and what they didn't learn which was again, very interesting theoretically, but somewhere in grad school, the light bulb went on and it's like, hold it. This is a skill that students need to, leave, to develop to become effective self-regulators and it's relevant to education. So at that point, I started to become interested in the different strategies students could use to learn. And as I was getting excited about that, my career took a major change and I went to take a postdoc to do work in aging with elderly and for, I took about a 15 year hiatus just to do research on how the mind influences, I'm sorry, how aging influences the mind as we get older. And just recently in the last 10 years, uh, when I stopped getting funded from the National Institute on Aging, I was able to turn my passion back to education and really focus on uh, trying to investigate those strategies that help students learn the best. So I am excited to be back to where I started, which is a focus on education and helping students learn. 
I'm glad they stopped your funding because you've helped us. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's brilliant. But actually, um, and I've spoken about this to a few people, I think you might have said this, there was this gap, uh, disconnect between teachers and the research about memory. And your American uh, educator, you know, the strengthening the student toolbox, that's just fantastic because it's free to read online, it's accessible, it's digestible. I've shared it with students, with parents, with colleagues, everyone who knows me <laughs> has read it. And I just think that has just has been so helpful. Do you think that that gap is closing? I mean, look at us now talking, the classroom teacher and the, <laughs> the professor. You know, Kate, five years ago, I would have been nothing but frustrated and saying how I, I, it, as much work as we've been doing in cognitive psychology, education psychology, as basic researchers, you know, we are really frustrated because we feel like the work is just not making it out to the public despite our best efforts. And in the last five years, I've seen a major swing where because of people like you who are doing wonderful things. Ah, amazing. <laughs> I just see anyone being listed this who are thinking, why is Kate saying that? <laughs> yeah, well, your book is amazing. And to help translate, what sometimes are often difficult to read, boring empirical articles on these topics and translate them in a way that can be user-friendly. Because what I write in a really kind of boring journal article really cannot capture most teachers' attention. It certainly would not capture mine. Whereas now, uh, you know, there are, I think, a large force of individuals, including yourself, who are trying to translate this material and doing it successfully. You know, not only to level the individual teachers, but more important to leadership structures and how to change curriculum and implement some of these great ideas to help students in general. And I think one thing that's happened too to really improve this translation from basic research to the classroom is that at least some of the strategies that we're discovering work well are not that difficult to implement with fidelity if you know how to implement them and actually understand how and why they work. So I think it's a confluence of all these things that now I feel like, yeah, quite a bit of not only my work, but many other people's work out there that started in the lab and that we're moving out of the classroom is finally hitting teachers. So I'm encouraged and I hope to see this movement continue. Yes, me too. It's really exciting. Uh, and I'm really passionate about study strategies like you, but I've heard from students who have this attitude well, any revision is better than no revision and study. And of course, that is true. But you have shown that some are, are more effective, powerful than others. Um, and that's a message that I'm trying to share and spread. And some students embrace that and others are, are very reluctant to, perhaps because of the habits that they've already formed. Is that your experience as well? Yeah. Absolutely. And, it, and that can be outrageously frustrating. So you're trying to share some strategies that work well with students. And often I'll get the, uh, the appropriate attitude. Well, that works for everyone else, but it really doesn't work for me. So if they don't understand the research that no, this is going to work for everyone. But I think students can develop these misconceptions about effective strategies. Because sometimes when they try them out, they don't use them with fidelity. So they might try retrieval practice out, but then they don't really attempt to retrieve things from memory, they cheat and so forth. So they don't experience how well this, this works. And another reason why this barrier exists, I think, and this is just a system of some of the school systems here in the States, at least for the students I interact with, is that 
some relatively ineffective study strategies can help them get by in high school. And those strategies just are ineffective when you get to college and you need to regulate yourself and just rereading a textbook the night before an exam is not gonna help you pass a chemistry course. And instead of realizing, wow, I just failed my first chemistry exam, there must be something wrong with how I'm, how I'm preparing. Many students will think there must be something wrong with me and I'm not capable of learning chemistry. And of course, you and I know that's absolutely incorrect that anyone's capable of learning this content as long as they uh, you know, attack it with the right passion and with the like, right strategies. And I think often that's, that's not happening. We need to find ways to, to kind of bridge those barriers or overcome those barriers for students and help them develop better strategies and practices, which I would hope would start well before they come to me in college. I'd like to see them start using these techniques early on so they get a better understanding of how to use them and that they can actually work for them. Yeah, absolutely. It makes sense why they would prefer these strategies because they're easier. They don't require as much effort. I mean, if you think about when you see beautiful notes in all different colors that are all highlighted compared to you know, a challenging test and quiz, well, the effort. But I'm with you. You've seen some of the things that I've, I've tweeted. It's probably just as well you're not on Twitter. I, you'd get lots of notifications. I'm always quoting and sharing your work. And one of the quotes I shared was actually about highlighters because some people have now gone the other way and said, oh, let's get rid of highlighter pens. They're, they're rubbish, they're not good. But actually that's not what you're saying, is it? You're, well, you, you say it's a good starting point. Is that correct? No, that was never our intent to say to throw out your, uh, your highlighters. I've got my favorite highlighter sitting right beside me that I never let students use. Don't touch my favorite highlighter. You know, the original monograph that we wrote on, on strategies that work best, we're comparing a strategy to reading. So how much do you learn say if you just read a passage versus if while you're reading, you highlight it, okay? So I would have you either read or highlight the passage and then I test you on that content. You know, some studies do show that highlighting can improve your knowledge a little bit over just rereading, but those effect sizes tend to not be that large even when they're significant. The killer is just reading a passage once, even when you highlight it, you will not achieve the level of mastery that you need to pass an exam to really learn that content. So in my mind, I wish the message would have originally been in the monograph, not that these things necessarily are bad, but they're just not the end of that learning journey. They're the beginning of it. I, you know, I use a highlighter to highlight what's most important, right? So in say, an email that you may have sent me, I would highlight all those things that I need to review and think about before we discuss, just like I would hope a student would highlight all the content that they think is most critical to learn for a course, but then they need to go back and deeply process that content so they can retain it and understand it for a longer period of time. So that's just the start of it. Now, that assumes students are capable of identifying the most important content versus as you just noticed, or, or noticed, we both do, as sometimes you look at a textbook and everything's highlighted. And it's like, well, that's not very effective either. So I'm sure there's some good ways to use highlighters and some not so good ways, but certainly let's not throw out our highlighters. They can be very useful. Let's keep our computers in the classroom to take notes when they are effective as well. Let's not throw those out. Uh, instead, let's understand when a particular technology 
whether it's as complicated as a computer to take notes with or as simple as a highlighter to highlight with, when the best time to use those are and how they can help students learn. Yeah, I've given the example, and I know learning is not the same as a, an actor learning his lines, but there is obviously the element of learning. An actor will highlight the lines they need to learn, but just because they've highlighted it, they don't know the lines. It would be brilliant if our brains worked that way, that we highlighted something and it, <laughs> and it went in there. It doesn't work like that. And when I say that, they go, oh yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, but the advice I give with highlighters is, I, I say like you, it's the starting point. I teach history, they may highlight the key dates, key individuals, and then with that highlighted information, we can use that to create questions for testing and things like that. So we can connect them together, these strategies. So like, and I've, I've heard you say as well about how the highlighters can be a bit like a comfort blanket to students and, and they enjoy that. So we don't want to take that away. <laughs> comfort blanket. Like I said, I'm not going to take my best friend and throw it in the garbage can when it helps me to concentrate while I'm studying, right? Yeah, so that's one of the strategies. Um, another one that you often describe as, as promising is interleaved practice. Mm -hmm. um, I, from conversations I've had with teachers and, and with students, is this is uh, the strategy I would say they perhaps might find either the most confusing or the hardest to, to implement. Um, in comparison to quizzing uh, and spreading that out, even though there's elements here with the distributed. But in terms of interleaved practice, could you explain that and maybe offer any advice for teachers or yeah. and or students? Yeah, I can. And let me first try to explain it. And then I'm going to, unfortunately, introduce some theory. Yeah. About <laughs> why it works and then which will kind of support my advice. Interleaved practice, is, is actually a little bit confusing, I think. A uh, way to explain it, imagine you're taking an art history course and you wanna learn the styles of different painters, okay? So this is one example. I think another good example could be mathematics too. We could discuss that as well. So I could review all, all of the paintings I have access to by Matisse, and then I can go and look and study all the paintings by Monet and then study all those by Pissarro, right? Trying to learn the styles of say these impressionist painters. Then when I'm subsequently tested in class, I'm shown say a picture by Matisse, identify who this is. And then I'm shown one by Monet and by Pissarro. So during the test, all of those paintings are all mixed up, right? But note when I was studying, I studied them en masse. That is, I studied all the Matisse paintings. Then I went and studied all the Monet paintings. So interleave practice would be, I'm gonna study Matisse first followed by Manet, followed by Pissarro, and then go back. So I'm interleaving or mixing up these paintings. Even better if it's retrieval practice, so I show myself a painting, have to retrieve who it was, and then get a different one. Now, why is this difficult to instantiate? Well, to make it really worthwhile, I, I need someone else to interleave this practice for me, because if I do it as a student, well, I just develop the interleave list so I know what everything is ahead of time. So sometimes it can be challenging. That said, you can imagine putting together homework sheets that would be interleaved practice, especially in mathematics. So imagine you covering uh, three or four different topics in algebra. Well, how we typically practice that is a student would go home and do a worksheet based on just all of the content that they were introduced in the class today. 
the next class, they would introduce a new concept in mathematics and then practice problems for that concept. Well, imagine that now a worksheet isn't just from that problems that were introduced on that day, but involved problems that were introduced the last three weeks. So they're all interleaved together. Now, the, and interleaving tends to improve students' retention of those concepts. So it helps students in early grades. This is work by Doug War that's just absolutely brilliant and inspiring, shows that students are much more capable of solving uh, difficult math problems when their initial practices interleave than when we use a more traditional blocking system. Okay. So does that kind of make sense? I'm sure it does to you. you yeah, that does, really does make sense. And actually, I was just thinking as you said that, so flashcards with a question on one side, answer on the other, very simple, great for retrieval practice. Yep. Then interleave that, would mixing up our flashcards with piles with either different topics or different subjects. Would that work or would that be confusing? What do you think? I think first, I think it could be confusing. Yeah. And I'm not we could provide much more of a benefit than how students would normally use those flashcards. I mean, I can imagine going crazy with your interleaving and having your history class interleave with problems on math, interleave with problems on this. Yeah. I, I don't know. I think that would be confusing and frustrating to me, but you know, it, it is interleaving and that, that could work. And the reason why I don't think it would add much of a benefit, Kate, is just because of why interleaving works. And originally in the first papers that came out on this, Doug Rohr, uh, proposed a really compelling explanation, which is that interleaving really helps students because you can contrast different examples. So when I just saw Matisse painting, which kind of looks a lot like Monet, anyone out there knowing art will know I'm not an artist. So maybe it doesn't look that much like Monet, but I can at least then, because they're both juxtaposed side by side, I just studied Matisse, now I get a Monet. I can contrast the two to figure out, well, what makes a Monet a Monet and what makes a Pissarro a Pissarro and a Matisse a Matisse? Or, you know, what's the particular solution of this problem and how is it different for a solution of another problem? Okay, that's called discriminative contrast. Note, however, another reason why interleaving might help is that you're spacing the practice of similar concepts. So now, not only do I have Matisse interleaved with Monet, but when I see Matisse again, I get spaced practice for it, okay? The research we've done using math problems and solving math problems, we, just like Doug Rohr, have discovered that the main benefit of interleaving is simply due to spaced practice. So, that as long as you're spacing the practice of those concepts, so with flashcards, you, you practice one, you, you may not get it right, you study the word, it goes at the back of the stack, so you have space practice of that concept, you're gonna get pretty much the full benefit out of that technique. So I think interleaving is a great way to have uh, students practice. My guess it also reduces anxiety when you get to an exam where everything is naturally interleaved, right? Uh, but yet the real power of interleaving may largely be the fact that it includes spacing, which is good. We know spacing is very important for learning, it's just the discriminative contrast may not be as important as we first thought. But research is still going on. So I hope when Doug Rohr and others like myself really learn how this works well, we'll have a better ideas on how to instantiate it most effectively in the classroom. So right now, if you're confused by any of this, please go on and keep trying to interleave because 
if you don't get a benefit based on discriminative contrast, you're gonna get that spacing of benefit, which is good. But I, I probably would not interleave history with physics with- Yeah. With <laughs> yeah I mean, interleave, <laughs> interleave physics with physics and, and uh, confuse history ideas with other confusing history ideas so they can help to understand the difference between the two. Yeah, I haven't suggested that, but I was just thinking that, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> how far oh. do we go with this? <laughs> and, and people are doing research along those lines, like if I, if I uh, interleave all these different concepts, will I get some major boost in performance? At least we found in interleaving concepts from different chapters of intro psych hasn't produced any better benefit than just space practice of those same concepts. Mm. But both show a benefit because they both take advantage of spacing. Well, I do say with my students with flashcards, I, I do encourage them and I've had to help them design flashcards as well because even though it's, I say flashcards shouldn't be flashy, question and answer, <laughs> and that's it really, um, but they can struggle to write questions like you said, how do they know which is the most important content? So, uh, and then there's this, there's this debate, do they get pre-made flashcards? Well, actually, ready-made flashcards will still serve the purpose for retrieval practice, won't it? And if the questions are more effective than the students trying to come up with questions themselves, then that could be preferable. But ideally, we want students to be able to create flashcards, don't we? So that by the time the students are coming to you in college, that they can do this independently. But it's not easy. It takes time and guidance. It's, it? it's very difficult, quite frankly. In fact, we're working with teachers in chemistry and biology now and they are responsible for developing the flashcard content that then we instantiate into a, a, a something we call the study buddy. And you know, I don't think there's any reason why instructors shouldn't get involved to try to identify the most important concepts for their students to learn. But you're correct, when the students leave college, they're gonna have to figure out, say for their first job, what do I need to learn really well? And well, one way to learn it is using right, flashcards and all of these good strategies. So they'll need to know how to instantiate it. However, we first need to motivate them to instantiate these good strategies and having a professor come up with the content, helping them use uh, flashcard practice with fidelity so it really improves their achievement, can motivate students, we hope, to subsequently use these strategies subsequently. So I think the instructors should <laughs> reveal what's most important yeah. and help learn that content. I mean, we're not old school like 60 years ago where students had to figure everything out and by God, I might test you on anything that's said in class because you should know it all. That's unrealistic, right? There's not enough time of the day to know it all. One thing instructors need to do is figure out exactly what students need to uh, retain over the long term and right and focus their teaching and their instruction just on that. Yeah, I'm that's more for college professors who like to think that everything they know <laughs> something that their students should also know, which I used to have that issue when I was younger, but now I realize it's, it's silly. Well, I tell my students to, to also shuffle their flashcards up because I remember as a child, uh, I had a PC <laughs> computer that had a, a geography quiz with the flags of the world and I got this really high score, 100%, but the flags were always in the same order. <laughs> So I just memorized the order instead of learning all of the flags of the world, which is really what the purpose of the quiz was. But I sort of, as you said, we find ways to cheat the systems and the right. strategies. 
Well, I think that's a very good strategy to use in that case. So congratulations. Yeah, I got, I got my 100%. So I'm very happy about that. Well, you've already touched upon it, actually, about because, um, you know, you say about retrieval practice and space practice distributed are so effective and powerful. And I've also heard you talk about time management and how that is an issue for students. So do you think when it comes to students who are cramming their revision and doing it in big chunks and quite last minute, do you think that's really what it comes down to is an organisation issue that they've left it and they haven't planned a space schedule? Uh, based on my own personal experience, intuition and common sense, absolutely yes. Yeah. And, and this is working with college students now. And... Uh, let me give you one anecdote that is kind of based on research. So we developed a really nice system to have students use successive relearning to learn difficult neurobio concepts. Way too many of these concepts for a first exam. And it's kind of the appropriate use of flashcards. You retrieve concepts, difficult ones, until you get them right. And then you subsequently come back and you relearn that content. It's called successive relearning. Straightforward. Students know how to use this when it comes to foreign language vocabulary. But when it comes to learning really uh, complicated materials, they often don't use flashcards when you and I know they can use them, right? So we set up this, um, this system, the study buddy system, we call it, to help students really learn this content well. And this, by the way, is in a course that has a really high DFW struggle. That is, they score 25% or more of the students are getting Ds, Fs, or withdrawing from the course, okay, which is not good for anyone. Okay? And we hope that the system would help students achieve. So the faculty member chose the 300 concepts that he felt were most critical for the students to learn for the first exam. Note the exam was three weeks into the semester, which made us realize why it was a high DFW course, because learning 300 concepts in three weeks is just ridiculous, right? So we had uh, the professor, Aaron Jasnow, cut those 300 concepts down to about 100 essential ones. And we had, we set up the system so the students could use it. They loved it. There were about 40 students. Uh, they used it with fidelity because we gave them lots of guidance and scaffolding about when to pick it up, when to come back and practice. So they had to practice two or three times a week until that first exam. We got all these testimonials from students unsolicited about, they couldn't believe how well they could learn this concept. It's, it's motivating them to study more because now they can see they learn it all. Can you please provide us the system for exam two? Okay. All was good. In fact, when we looked at the data, the system boosted their grade for by over letter grade. So it was helping them to learn this co these concepts. The day after the first exam, we brought the system back to the students and said, hey, we've got these flash, uh, these flash drives with a study buddy on it for exam two. Everyone greedily takes one out. We had no scaffolding here, okay? Students were on their own. No one used it, mm. right? Well, I'm exaggerating. Three students used it but without fidelity, they used it to cram the night before. Yeah. And when we talked to these students afterwards, it was simply, well, I ran out of time. I got busy in my life. And what they're saying is like, well, I didn't manage my time to use this. That is, you know, they wake up in the morning, they do their things and it's not part of their schedule. Like I'm gonna study for an hour for this course using say a good strategy like retrieval practice or what have you. So I think that is, we didn't provide that scaffolding, which we did the first time. We told them exactly when they should pick this up and so forth. It's simple time management skills. 
And you know, I do understand it. Students are very busy. So if this isn't already scheduled in, often students aren't proactive, right? They see, oh my goodness, a test is coming up. Probably they don't even see it, Kate. The professor tells them a day or two before, oh, remember there's a test coming up. And then they get into cram mode. So it's really training students about the importance of time management skills, not only for using effective strategies for preparing for courses, but how about for effective strategies for preparing for life? If I could start now my education research again right now, I'm pretty sure I would be focused on how to train time management skills, how to motivate students to use them, because I think that's one skill if we can really help students embrace and be intrinsically motivated to use they're going to be outrageously successful after they leave school. It's, it's by far the most vital skill a student can learn. And then, of course, they have to learn all the knowledge. We want our physicists, by the way, to know physics, and we want our doctors to know about the body. But you know what? They get there by managing their time, right, so they can use it effectively and excel. Yeah. So there's my, my, my time management soapbox there. It's so important. <laughs> well, you absolutely need to. It does to undermine students. <laughs> you need to go with this, John, and research it and help us all like you've already been doing. Um, but someone actually sent me a question and I said, I, I already know what, what John will answer to this. And it, <laughs> it was a question about, um, do you think there's more time spent on the what, on the, the content than how students learn? And I said, well, yes. And uh, I've been reading... Uh, you were in the TES article and there was a podcast and so on. Yes, you've been very vocal and you said, we don't spend enough time supporting students, telling them about these effective strategies. And I mentioned this to Daniel Willingham, sorry, name dropping there. <laughs> Ask the cognitive scientists, I asked him this. And we had a really interesting conversation about where, where, whose responsibility is it? And Danny Willingham said, if a student doesn't know math, you go, well, why isn't the math teacher taught them that? But in terms of the learning strategies, well, who, who, whose responsibility is that? So I suppose that's my question to you. Is it, is it something that could be a separate subject or psychology as a subject for younger students? Or is it the responsibility of every teacher? to share this with students? I'm sorry, that's like a big <laughs> question. That is a huge question that deserves a really well thought out answer. <laughs> and I've thought about this quite a bit. I'm not sure I have the definitive answer because, and, and here's some of the issues or barriers that we need to get over in order to answer as well. First, some of these strategies, it's not difficult to train them or to use them. What's difficult is to encourage students to use them enough until they begin using them as, a, as just habitually, right? So this is something I just get used to using. Well, if it doesn't take that long to train, it seems odd to have one teacher who would be just dedicated to training all students to do that. Yeah. So it makes sense that if, if it's not someone central who is helping each teacher instantiate the ideas in the class, then at least some of the teachers who buy into the effectiveness of these strategies going to have to take uh, the bulls by the horn, as they say, and start implementing these in their classes, hopefully in a coordinated way. Because my gut hunch is the way this works the best for students is that they're getting the same message across multiple classes and actually experiencing how well these strategies can work across multiple classes. In an ideal world, the folks who are developing the curriculum for a school, the leadership, will develop plans to help 
teachers implement these strategies and train their students to use them. And what I mean by that, the leadership, of course, is in a very fortunate position to, if not demand, but highly encourage these activities to go on. But someone at that level is going to help to help us explain to teachers who are strategy reluctant about and, and really to teach them why these strategies work. So I at least know in some contexts, teachers don't understand why they're effective. And then they form misconceptions about them and hence don't want to train them. So for instance, we're talking about flashcards here. You and I know how valuable flashcards can be because they can help students understand concepts, not just memorize them, although memorization is very important. Whereas I'll have teachers here, very educated people, physicists and so forth, will say things like, well, they're just memorizing this stuff. It's just rote memorization. It's like, well, and more so, not only is it just rote memorization, oh, my students, all they do is memorize that stuff. They memorized it all, yet they still don't do well. Well, there's so many misconceptions in there. It's just unbelievable. First, your students say they're memorizing it all, but they're using ineffective strategies. So they're memorizing very little. They're coming to your test without <laughs> really low levels of knowledge to uh, pass. And even worse, it's like, well, just surely memorizing lots of stuff, if you do it in the right way, is going to help you to understand it, right? So memorizing that individual fact on its own might not be that useful, but in using retrieval practice to not only memorize individual facts, but then, right, retrieving how they're coordinated and interact together will lead to really incredible um, use of that knowledge uh, in a variety of ways. So I guess what I'm saying, I think leadership at the higher level is critical for not only encouraging teachers to use this, but coming together and presenting the facts about why these work and how they're good and really kind of changing some teachers' misconceptions that, no, there are specific ways to go about learning your content that will be most effective. And if you have students do this, especially outside of class, guess what? They'll be bringing a lot more to your classroom which will free up time for you to help them understand the content even more. So that was a long-winded answer to say, I don't know who should be responsible, but my guess is like in uh, any other group or societal group, probably at some point, everyone's responsible. Yeah, I totally agree that it comes from the top, but that we all have a responsibility. So when I was teaching in uh, the UK, they talked about us all being teachers of literacy. Literacy, speaking, listening, reading, writing, whatever the age or subject, literacy is important. But I think that's the same with the study strategies, regardless of the age and the subject. And I remember reading this research and using retrieval practice and space practice with my classes. And their results were amazing. And something you've mentioned as well is about the confidence, the motivation. So it's not, you know, just the, the results and the impact, which, of course, is incredibly important. But there's the other aspect of it as well. But my students, they weren't doing that with the other teachers. And when it came to results and things like that, and I asked them, had they used these techniques and strategies? And they said, no, we thought it was a, a history thing. <laughs> It's a learning thing, <laughs> but yes. you know, and actually then the results were incredible. And all of a sudden my school, the leadership um, said, how, how have these results been? What have you been doing? What's the secret? 
uh, well, no, and you know, it's not that it's a secret, but it's not as widely known. You know, and then I think probably that's when I shared your work and and the work with retrieval practice and everything like that, and just trying to make it mainstream. And something, oh, you won't like this, John, <laughs> because I was in, oh yeah, I was in um, two 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 examples that you won't like. Uh, I went to a online webinar um, that was about teaching and learning that it was a paid webinar and somebody said spaced practice was leaving lines between your work and spacing out the letters and the writing and not cramming it on a page and I just thought oh, oh my goodness and well this, that, that is spaced it is <laughs> but it it was the science of learning space practice I thought oh no oh my goodness and then there was another one that said about space and practice in the lesson. So if you have an hour lesson, then maybe just give them a break for 10 minutes, let them talk and go on their phones and then come back to the lesson. And I just thought, that, that's not it either. So we, we've got a real, leaders have a responsibility to support teachers with their professional development and learning because it's too important not to get right. I mean, I know those things sound probably a bit crazy to you, spacing it out on a page, but these things were being said in a sort of serious way. And perhaps there might be some good aspects, presentation-wise, of spacing out your work, but that was obviously not what you've written about. So, so important, yes, to get this right. And it, it's, it's got the potential. And admittedly, this is the first time I've heard about spacing out things on a page while you're taking notes. Sorry to tell you that. <laughs> but I've heard a lot from students, well, I space my practice all the time because I study more than once for a class. And so it's a misconception that spacing is just studying more than once on two different occasions. No, it's, as you know, right, studying the same thing on more than one occasion spaced out in time, which can be really, really valuable. And I don't know where these misconceptions come from, but it's very important to like overturn them, right? Because we do want students to study a lot, not just cram, because it affords them truly, right? Spacing of the same content to, toward mastery, which is weird because students use these strategies all the time outside of the classroom. I just them to use it inside the classroom, right? So they just don't realize that they're experts in so many things that they obtain that expert by using space practice. So. It's, it's giving them the insight. The reason that they play video games well is the same reason why they could be good at physics. Yeah, why? Physics seem like video games, does it, right? <laughs> and why do they think that, you know, if you ask them for a ma about a marathon, would someone prepare for to run a marathon the day before? Would you just cram and do as much running as you can the day before? Of course you wouldn't. It's ridiculous. <laughs> why? There's no... But right. why, why do we have that same approach with academic Exactly. And it's realizing that even though the mind really isn't a muscle, it operates in many ways like your muscles do, which, by the way, are really driven by your mind. So it all comes around full circle. The, yes, I don't get it. But at least in working with college students, I do have them describe how they got good at something. And they, they don't realize it, but they're always describing successive relearning. And I'd point that out to them and then they beg them, let's try this on for size in at least one of your classes to see how it's going to work. Right? Right. So, yeah, it's just, it's just when they do, do realise this, it's a delightful moment, isn't it? They think, oh, this works. And then 
they embrace that and, and what the sort of almost no going back really I use this as an adult now retrieval practice as, because I was using highlighting and rereading all the time and I did do well in the school but it required a huge amount of effort and and that's why um and we still have to put effort in of course but the study strategies that you, you basically were saying a pen and paper really is all you need you know very very basic isn't it um to, and even then you could also do it verbally as well with somebody so these are Absolutely. low cost high impact that's not to love very high impact <laughs> yeah I, actually well you have definitely inspired me with my work with retrieval practice i have written three books i feel like i could write another book about retrieval practice <laughs> So maybe I will, and I might ask you Love to help me. <laughs> but retrieval practice, yes, I think I feel again there's some myths and misconceptions about it. Um, and I, I really like how you said about how test and quiz are two four-letter words that have very different, very different connotations, low stakes, high stakes. So it is easy to embed and embrace for teachers with retrieval practice. Um, there was some teachers who say, Well, I've always done this, and I think. There's an element of truth that we've had quizzes, but I think we use them more for formal assessments and perhaps weren't doing it enough. And even sometimes, yeah, like you said, the word test and the language that we use and the, the way that we do that can still be high stakes. So do you have any advice for teachers in terms of retrieval practice? Uh, my mantra is low effort, high impact, low effort for the teacher in the sense of, um, like a brain dump that Pooja Agarwal suggests, write down everything right. you can remember about this topic. That's really low effort for the teacher, uh, but absolutely high impact on learning. So is that absolutely. What, I'm glad you agree with that advice. No, no, absolutely. And it's just a particular approach you take to your role as a teacher and the role as a student. When I was younger, now, I was not well-trained because I'm a college professor, right? We don't get a lot of training in teaching. It was kind of me against them. It's like, okay, I'm going to build this and we'll see if you can get over it. Well, of course, that's the absolutely horrible perspective to take as a teacher. It's me with you, so to speak. So anymore, I absolutely highlight exactly what exams are going to look like. I'll be happy to share questions. I want them practicing what they're going to be expected to do when the high stakes exams come around. So imagine coaching a basketball team and you want your team to really do well shooting free throws after they're really tired. Well, guess what? You make them run laps and shoot free throws when they're really tired. You don't have them come off fresh and practice that way. You know, you practice how you want to actually perform. So the more the teachers can just really not be worried about revealing how students are gonna be, uh, um, you know, the revision and what the revision is going to be and have students practice toward mastering that. And I don't mean just rotely memorizing the answers to questions, but literally practicing them. So, you know, what I do, which over the long haul has been low effort for me, is that I, you know, rewrite my revisions every year. So I have a bank of questions now from prior exams that then I have students practice on. So they're answering the same kind of questions in space practice, sometimes in the class as a warm-up, and sometimes outside of class that, you know, I, I give them these uh, practice exams and tell them how to use them. And again, low effort on my part over the long haul, but again, major benefit for the students. 
partly because it helps them, as you know, learn the content well, but I think the better that teachers can have students experience the exam prior to it can reduce anxiety, can help students become comfortable. Because no, another reason why students don't perform well on these exams is for all these extra reasons, like they get anxious, they get nervous. So if, what a great thing, if the way students are practicing are not only helping them learn the content, but are also helping them deal with the anxieties they have over high students, because you're at least in some ways, right, trying to simulate those with questions and so forth. And, and at least some research suggests that this actually works, that a little bit more frequent low stakes testing not only improves knowledge, but you know, it helps students be happier too. They know what to expect, right? Yeah, absolutely. Feeling that that class that I mentioned where we'd been doing spaced retrieval practice for two years, I just remember before the final exam, how confident they were and how confident I was uh, as well as a teacher. And because I do so much about retrieval practice, there's lots of questions that I get asked that I, I don't know the answer to, or that I actually think the answer is better some, some questions coming from our professional judgment as a teacher. Because one of the questions I'll give you, um, a classic example, the question I get asked most is exactly how long should I wait before teaching new content and then asking my students retrieval practice questions about it. And I spoke to Pooja Agarwal about this. And basically her recent uh, uh, meta-analysis and review, you know, she was just saying, well, don't become too fixated on it. But there's also so many variables, isn't there? Because it depends how often you will see your class, depends on the complexity of the content and what their prior knowledge linked to that was. So I, teachers want me to say, wait X amount of days, wait X amount of hours. And I never say that. Um, so, <laughs> unless do you have that answer, John? <laughs> I do not have the answer. In fact, what some of the research, uh, my main collaborator, uh, Dr. Catherine Ross and I did early on in developing um, the study buddy that instantiates successive relearning, the, the basic research we were doing was aimed at answering those questions. Like, how much practice is enough? What's the spacing for the practice? And I, you know, pat on our back, we are using materials that most cognitive psychologists weren't using at the time. That is, you know, cognitive psychologists like to use made up materials that no one has experience with, like nonsense stuff. We are using classroom materials, learning difficult concepts and intro psych and so forth. And we came up with a recommendation, how much and how much to space. I'm not gonna offer it here for the same reason you don't wanna offer it because it all depends. And often I find that one of the most important variables is just how you set up your, your own course and how many exams you're going to have. Well, you can only do so much practice spaced to a certain degree, depending on when the next exam is going to be. So we do know more and that you should space the practice of the same content. So retrieval practice of the same content. Okay to a degree so that you struggle to retrieve that content when you come back to it, but you're successful. Well, I can't even tell you what the ideal spacing is for that because it depends on the student, on the content. So yeah, I agree with Pooja, don't become too fixated. The idea is do use spaced retrieval practices as much as you feel like you can comfortably fit in either into your class or into uh, like worksheets or what have you after class. 
And, and don't worry about it too much. You're just, if you're starting to use these strategies, I can tell you, you're gonna see an improvement in your students' learning. And uh, then you can make decisions on whether you wanna refine that moving forward. So I think to some degree, the teachers will be the ones to ask these questions to after they've used them for a couple years and they figured out what really works best for their students. Yeah, and that's, I feel quite confident with what I'm doing. And um, another question that's often asked is exactly how long in a lesson should we spend on retrieval practice? And again, Pooja was saying the similar thing. And somebody said, I've been told to spend 80% of the lesson on retrieval practice. And I said, well, like, realistically, I have, I got an exam class. I have got content I have to teach by the end of this course. And we also have to do a really good job of, the, with the encoding stage and teaching the new content so all of this enthusiasm about retrieval practice well it's got to get to their long-term memory first hasn't it we can't right. skip that so again i just think it, it's but it's really good that we are we are having these conversations isn't it that we've got to a point so. where we understand what retrieval practice is and now we're reflecting we're refining we're asking these questions so are there things that you you still want to explore with your research with with study strategies or time management being one of them <laughs> obviously actually yeah de developing our success every learning program which is you know a, a sophisticated use of uh, flashcards for complex materials in chemistry and biology we know it works so some of the questions that we are addressing now that i i hope to address before retirement here has to do with how to motivate students to use the system. What kind of scaffolding do they really need to use it with fidelity? I mean, do we really have to manage their time for them? Which is not so bad, right? You could set up systems. Many of the online flashcard systems do have um, calendars that you can schedule to remind you when to do things. So we're asking how much scaffolding do students need to use these technologies with fidelity? And of course, in the long run, it's like, well, exactly how much instruction do students need and what kind of motivations do they need to really manage their time with respect to preparing for studying and excelling in classes. And right now, the only motivation I can give them is to say, you know, if you do this effectively, you realize you're gonna have more free time to go out with your friends and party and you'll do so knowing that you know the content and confident that you're gonna excel in class so you can have an, even a better time when you go out on a Thursday night and start the weekend early. So I'm hoping eventually we learn how to get all this done. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, another bit of advice I give to teachers because I've been interested in this for years now is to just obviously be resilient with it, keep going, don't give up. Um, Daniel Willingham and I were talking about how we think it's important parents know as well that they can support their children because if they were to see their child rereading and highlighting and might think oh well done that you know and then their child doesn't do that well and they think well I don't understand that because I saw them studying but actually if they knew they could intervene couldn't they as well so absolutely and intervene and using these ineffective practices absolutely I think that everyone can help out and it's about changing those misconceptions having students complain that they were on the clock and did poorly anymore I believe them. They did study around the clock, they just did so in an ineffective way, so they're not learning. So if they use a better strategy, study around the clock, now they'll excel. But I think starting from parents, teachers, starting from kindergarten on up, if we can get this message out, I think we can have a real impact. 
Yeah, I love how you just said about uh, kindergarten, because you said that, you've said, this is great with students of all ages and all subjects. And, and that's why it's so powerful as well. And, and sometimes there can be a bit of a backlash where they say, I think you're, you're quizzing too much or my child doesn't respond well, or I've had students tell me that that's not their preferred learning style. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> what has that been debunked in america is that still floated around <laughs> oh it's still floating around but it's been debunked over and over again i mean it sounds like your uh, preference or style is not to learn really when i hear students say that right it's yeah, and, and then that was the problem um, with the class that I inherited who were older students. They were about 16, 17, and they'd already done some exams and they'd done well, but they had used rereading and their preferred learning style. So then when I was coming along saying, well, actually, let's do things a little bit differently. They were doing retrieval practice, although they didn't know or realize they were because they were doing past questions and, and they the flashcards, though, what they were doing was copying everything out from the book onto a flashcard and rereading the flashcard. So, again, it's one thing saying, oh, flashcards are effective, but they, they need that support. They need, like you said, to learn the how so that they can learn the what, the, the content. So, exactly. yeah, it is the, the younger, the better. I'm absolutely with you with that because it does become harder when students have these uh, these learning habits ingrained, and that comes back to where we started with the highlighters. <laughs> so. Exactly, and where students should start, but just not end, right? Exactly. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> so one of the questions, uh, because this is like a cognitive science special, um, that I asked Daniel Willinger was, "What do you think's next uh, in terms of?" learning about study and just in general, because I think in the UK, there's a lot of interest and the key message is they want more research in classrooms and perhaps wider range of subjects, because as you've mentioned, maths and science is quite a lot of research, but then there might be other subjects where there's not as much well-known research. So in terms of cognitive science, do you think that's, that's a direction or do you think, what do you think is next? Well, I, I you know, see a major movement across all disciplines involving cognitive psychology to move our laboratory research into the classroom. I think in my mind, that's absolutely essential, partly because I do not want to do an interview like this with you, Kate, and tell you that you should tell other teachers to use a technique that's only been established as effective in the laboratory. Because there's so many reasons why that great strategy in the lab have less of an impact right in the classroom and if it means a teacher doing something new well you really want to make sure that there's a chance that that's going to work right and there's so many reasons why things can fail and a big one why we really need to see more classroom research is much much of cognitive psychology is based on a classic experimental approach which i pit my favorite technique strategy say against reading i have one quick experience with both and I show that my technique, you get a five, you get a boost in performance about five percent better. It's significant. We already look. I'm a great researcher. There's nothing wrong with that. Most of my career is that. Okay. However, what when you look at the data, you'll notice that reading got you to about forty percent performance, and my new technique got you to forty-five percent. Imagine now we use that in the classroom. 
no one's going to be partying. Everyone flunked. So when you take the same kinds of strategies and evaluate them in the classroom, where your modal student really is motivated to achieve, now that strategy has to benefit students in a context where everyone's aimed at achievement, right? And that's a much more difficult bar to cross, but that's what I think we should hold our strategies against. And that's one reason why we've moved toward exploring not just retrieval practice during one attempt of retrieval practice, which we know can boost memory, but successively relearning where you keep going so you get it right, you come back, because it's that I'm going to keep coming back and doing it again that leads to mastery, to what we think could be real improvements in the classroom. So I think what I'm very excited about, I see lots of researchers ripping off that you know, lab coat, getting out of their ivory towers, and getting into the wonderful and messy world of classrooms. So I think that's where our hearts should lie, our research hearts, to show that what we do in the lab really does work in classrooms, or it might be limited in classrooms. There's nothing wrong with that. It just might mean we have to go back to the lab then to figure out how to make our strategies a bit better before we then hit the classroom. So I think more and more classroom research, having cognitive psychologists work directly with educators within disciplines is a really important um, moving forward. Yeah. Oh, I, I could talk to you for hours, honestly, I've got so many questions and teachers can hear you at the World Education Summit, is that right? You're the keynote speaker there, so. I, yes, I am, coming up, a couple of months. Absolutely, you'll be brilliant. And, and teachers, oh, honestly, when I put it on social media that I was chatting to you, you know, that, that green poster I sent you, everyone was like, oh, wow, Dunlosky, amazing. As I said, just Dunlosky, <laughs> the edgy rock star. <laughs> so thank yes. you so much for your time. And I really, you know, look forward to following your, your work and your research and don't retire just yet, <laughs> please. <laughs> Thanks for all the wonderful words, Kate. It's just been great talking to you today. I hope uh, anybody listening to this learns a little bit and gets back to the classroom with enthusiasm. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, thank you again. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.